If you turn in your Bibles to the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 13, found on page 974. Matthew 13, starting at verse 47. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers, but threw out the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Some years ago, I remember reading in the paper about a church in Houston, Texas, that one Sunday found it was being picketed by hundreds of Hindus. What had the uh, Second Baptist Church of Houston done to receive the wrath of so many people? Nothing, really. People that had gathered, they were actually uh, protesting what the uh, Southern Baptist Convention, how, um, through the media, how it was said that it was encouraging all their churches to pray for the lost. And it specifically listed Hindus and Jews and some other Muslims, other, other people of different faith. And so they, they chose to protest, kind of um, not that that church did it, but it was a way for them to protest and show their, their displeasure. As one Hindu leader said, a religion that condemns all others to eternal hell is selfish, exclusionist, and promotes hatred. Wow, that's pretty strong. Because they were going to be praying for the lost, reaching out to their neighbors with the love of Christ. They're called selfish, exclusionist, and promotes hatred. Well, that wasn't the end of it. Um, once the Muslims and the, and the Jews also heard about this, they were quite upset. And they didn't care to hear that um, this, these Christians were, were actually praying for them. Um, when the media got a hold of the story, they expressed outrage toward the intolerance they saw in the Christian church. One newspaper editorial said, and I'm quoting, These conversion efforts are reminiscent of the Middle Ages when the church burned at the stake anyone who refused to convert. What? <laughs> okay. You can only shake your head sometimes at how the world responds to God's people. Clearly, they don't understand. There's so many things I could say about this. Clearly, the Hindus and Muslims and Jews, they're, they're afraid of the prayers and the outreach of God's people. But I think their protests also said something else. They, they were also protesting uh, uh, against uh, Christians who believe that there is only one way to heaven. That Jesus alone is the way, the truth, and the life. That's what John 14 says. Or Acts 4.12. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given by which men 
might be saved. And because we believe in this truth, we also believe what it what this implies that unless you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you cannot go to heaven. Clearly, it is found, salvation is found only through Jesus. And that also means that if you don't ask Jesus to be your Lord and Savior, then you're facing an, an eternity without Christ, which really is a horrible proposition. Now in Matthew 13, we find a, a, a collection of, of uh, Jesus' parables. And each of these parables really point kind of to the same reality, and that's what is life in the kingdom of God. And each of those parables kind of speak toward that theme. In the parable of the net, Jesus is warning the people about the coming judgment. Until judgment day comes, God will, will not totally remove evil from the world, but he allows it to exist right along with the righteous. The wicked and the righteous exist together until the very end. Now, if you, we had the time and we had read that, that the, all the parables in chapter 13, there's also a parable there of the, the, the wheat and the weeds. And, and if you read that, it sounds a lot like this one. And you might be wondering, well, why in the world is Jesus kind of repeating himself? Different story, but isn't it just the same message? Just a little bit different covering? Well, I think the one major thing that the parable of the net teaches that we don't find in, in that other one is the wicked need to repent while there's still time. It's a warning. It's a warning that judgment is coming. And there's only a short amount of time that we might respond because once we're facing Jesus on judgment day, it'll be too late. I think it's also important to notice that um, we're not just talking about the wicked in the world around us, but these are fish that have been gathered together in the church. And so we're talking about the wicked in the church as well. Just because you go to church doesn't mean you're saved, and I think we clearly know that. Even the demons can profess Jesus, that, that he's God, but that doesn't mean they have a relationship with him. See, it's all about walking with the Lord, being in step with him, asking Jesus to be your, your Savior. When Jesus told his disciples this parable, I'm, I'm sure they were thinking, finally, a parable that we understand, that we can relate to. Because don't forget, most of these disciples were, used to be fishermen. And so as Jesus used that as the setting for his parable, they're probably nodding their heads, thinking, okay, we've, we've got this one. Normally back then, fishermen used two different kinds of net. One net was kind of a bell-shaped net that usually one or two people would throw. I'm sure you've seen videos about that. They throw it, and it goes in a circle, and it, it goes down. It's weighted, and it collects the fish, and when you pull on the drawstring, it closes the mouth of the net, and you can pull them up into the boat. The other kind of net is a drag net, and it's much larger. Back then, a drag net was often little over uh, a half mile long. I mean, these, these are long nets. And they had to be, because you would tie one end to the shore, you would bring it out in an arch, and then bring it back to shore at a different place. And then 
The top of the net would be uh, um, buoyed by uh, corks, and, and the bottom would be weighed down by stones. And so then all the fishermen would gather together and pull in that big heavy net with all the fish in it. And usually after the, the fish were drawn up to the shore, then the fishermen would sort through the fish, throwing away some of the fish, the garbage fish, and, and, and keeping the good fish. Back then, they didn't have DNR. Sorry, Kevin. And so what they often did with those fish that they didn't like, the carp and the catfish, they would just throw them up on the shore and, and let them die. And, and um, that all goes all the way back to the Old Testament, where there's Old Testament law that says you may eat fish with scales, but not fish that have no scales or, or no fin. They would put keepers into baskets, take them to market, and again, the junk fish they would just toss. And in this parable, Jesus says that the junk fish will be thrown into the fiery furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And just paying attention to Jesus' words, clearly it tells us it's, his story is not just about fish, but it has, it has some meaning, a deeper spiritual meaning that we're going to be looking at. Now in this parable, Jesus says the net was thrown into the lake and gathered fish of every kind. We're never told who throws the net out, but clearly it's assumed. It's the, it's the fishermen who do that. They're also the ones who, who pull the net in. But in Jesus' application of this parable, he kind of throws a twist in there, and suddenly it changes a little bit as Jesus explains what, what that parable means. And in his interpretation, he says it's not the uh, fishermen who will uh, be sorting the fish, but it's going to be the angels. And I, I think the, the message there is clear, that even though God's people are, are used by God to gather in the lost and, and to bring in um, those fish out in the ocean, the lost in the world, yet at the, at the same time, they have to remember that the righteous, they also will stand in judgment. The righteous along with the wicked. And that's why there's going to be the sorting at the very end and and who's more qualified to do that than our Lord, our Lord Jesus, and, and his angels, who he sends to do that task? Now again, as I said a moment ago, it, a lot of those fish, the wicked, are, are found even within the church. See, it's not enough to just say, I believe in Jesus. But there has to be a relationship. You have to actually ask Jesus to come into your life. See, otherwise, you're just going through the motions. You look like a Christian, you can act like a Christian, but if there's no relationship with Christ Jesus, then you're not a Christian. Because that's where it has to begin. This parable is a warning for the church. And for those who claim they are following Jesus about the approaching judgment. But someone might ask, if God hates sin and, and the evil in the world so much, then why doesn't he do something about it? Why does he wait to return? And I think the answer to this is similar to the answer that was given 
in an earlier parable, um, again, the parable of the weeds and, and the wheat, where Jesus gives this reply. The servant said to the master in, in that parable, should he pull out the weeds? And, and the master says, no, you need to wait. Verse 29, because in gathering the weeds, you might root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest, and at harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them into bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. See, this is true in, in this parable as well. God is unwilling to lose even one of his own, and so he waits until all those he has called are found. And so it's grace that he waits, because he's not willing to allow one of his children to be lost. For the time being, God permits unbelief and unrighteousness to exist together with the righteous. But it won't be long until the day of salvation is over, and King Jesus will return, and he's going to judge the living and the dead. As that day approaches, the net of God's judgment, it's, it's sli- silently starting to close, moving through the sea of humanity, drawing all, all people to the shores of eternity where there's going to be separation with believers being with God forever in heaven and, and the wicked being separated from God forever in eternal damnation. Even though the net is slowly being drawn closed, sadly, the wicked, they move around acting like it'll never happen, that they're free. The net may, may, the net may even startle them and touch them from time to time and get fairly close, but they just swim away from it. They think they have all the time in the world. They'll get serious about their faith later. For now, they just want to have fun and play. Even when the good news of the gospel is proclaimed and they hear it, again they swim away, thinking they've escaped, not realizing they are completely and inescapably encompassed in God's sovereign plan. You see, no one can can escape the approaching judgment. It's a day that we're all going to face. But for those who know Jesus, it's not a frightening proposition. Because we know the love of Christ. Those who have been washed in his blood and know his righteousness as their own, that's going to be a day of victory, a day to celebrate. But for those who stand before God still carrying their sins, that will be a day of, of horror. And without Jesus, Scripture and even our passage this morning, it's It's clear. There's only going to be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Over the last couple of weeks, we've looked at what makes hell so terrible. Personally, I I think that hell is more than the eternal flames. Whether the flames are there, I, I, I don't know. But I think what makes it even worse than those flames is a total separation from God total separation from God, from his love, from his goodness, from his peace. Right now, God is holding back evil, restraining it, but in hell, its full effect is going to be felt. There's going to be total despair, 
total hopelessness. There's going to be no joy, no love, no beauty, no nothing. And it's going to be like that forever. What What a horrible proposition when you think about the horrors of hell. You know, I think it's important that we talk about this because I think there's a lot of misinformation about hell and about its reality. Our parable says it will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Have you ever done something that you feel really bad about? Maybe you said something to someone and you knew it was wrong and later you regret it. You feel guilty. You just feel, you feel bad. Well, at times like that, for those of you who know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, when you ask for forgiveness, Jesus will come with his Holy Spirit and not only comfort you, but Jesus forgives us. And there's, it's amazing when you feel that forgiveness and know that God's not holding your sin against you, that you've been made new. You know, but in hell, there's no comforter. There's no reassuring arms of love around you. There's just guilt and hopelessness and despair and weeping and gnashing of teeth. Again, I can't imagine a a more terrible place for anyone to spend eternity in. You know, while I love the Far Side cartoons, I think it, it, it speaks to my warped sense of humor a little bit. Yet sometimes, even the Far Side goes a little too far. Any of you who, who know those, um, have read those, some can be hilarious, but then he does a number of them about hell. And is it really a joking matter? I remember one where it depicts this guy um, standing in a line um, down in some corridor of hell, and you can see flames in the background, and he whispers to the guy next to him, I hate this place. Well, I guess you can understand the humor in that, but is that funny? Or I've seen another one where, where uh, hell is depicted as spending eternity listening to accordion music or, or tuba music or, or something like that. Again, you understand the humor, but is it really something to joke about? How could a loving God send someone to a place like hell for eternity? And to answer this, you need to know something about God. You need to know something about who he is. Because God will punish sin for eternity. His justice, his holiness, his righteousness, they all demand it. But God is also a God of love, and that's why he sent his one and only son to this world to save those whom he calls, who put their faith in Jesus. Story told of a pioneer family traveling across the western plains in a covered wagon. As they were traveling, suddenly this wildfire appeared. And because the winds were were pretty strong, it was blowing the flames right at them, and there was no escape because the the wildfire, it, it stretched out so far. There's nothing they could do. The only thing they could do was they started a backfire, and they, they burned a, um, uh, started the grass on fire behind where they were, and uh, which the wind was blowing away from them, and after it burned, then they parked their wagon and their oxen, and all the people got into that already burned out area, and they escaped the flames that day. They found safety where the fire had already burned. 
This is what Christ has done for you. There's one place where the fire of God's judgment against sin has already burned. And that's at the cross of Jesus. You can choose to wait and stand before God at eternity, carrying the weight of your sins. Or you can seek refuge now and stand at the cross where God's wrath against sin has already burned, leaving an oasis of God's forgiveness and his grace. Even now, the net is beginning to be drawn closed. Soon it will be judgment day and our fates will be sealed. But I've got good news for you. Today is still the day of salvation. You can still respond to the gospel right now. Jesus stands before you with his arms open wide, wanting to wrap you in those arms of love and and show you his salvation. There's still hope. It's not too late. And just like the, the prodigal son ran home to his father, that's what we all need to do. We need to do this before it's too late because the Lord could come at any time. He could come at any minute. And so since now is the time of salvation, now is the time to make that decision to put Christ first in your life and to live for him. Randy Elkhorn in his book Heaven tells the story of Ruth Ann Metzger, a professional singer. And I think this kind of illustrates the importance of, of responding to the gospel and having your name written in the book of life. Several years ago, she was asked to sing at the wedding of a very wealthy man. According to the invitation, the reception would be held on the top two floors of Seattle's Columbia Tower, the northwest tallest skyscraper. She and her husband, Roy, were excited about attending. At the reception, waiters in tuxedos offered luscious hors d'oeuvres and exotic beverages. The bride and groom approached a beautiful glass staircase that led to the top floor. And followed behind the bride and the groom were all the guests, kind of like a procession. The top of the stairs, a maitre d' with a bound book greeted each of the guests. And he asked, may I have your name, please? She said, I'm Ruth Ann Metzger, and this is my husband, Roy. He searched under the M's. I'm not finding it. Would you spell it, please? So Ruth Ann spelled her name slowly. After searching the book, the mater D looked up and said, I'm sorry, ma'am, but your name's not in the book. Ruth Ann said, but there must be some mistake. I, I sang at the wedding. I was their singer. Of course, I have a place at this reception. But the mater D answered, it doesn't matter who you are or what you did. Without your name in the book, you cannot attend the banquet. And so he motioned for a waiter to come and he said, show these people to the service elevator, please. And so the Metzgers followed the waiter past beautifully decorated tables laden with shrimp and whole smoked salmon and magnificent carved ice sculptures. Adjacent to the banquet area, an orchestra was preparing to perform. The musicians were all dressed in white tuxedos. The waiter led Ruthann and Roy to the service elevator ushered them in and pushed the button G down to the parking garage. 
After locating their car and getting in, and they were a couple miles away, Roy reached over and put his hand on Ruth Ann's arm and said, Sweetheart, what happened? And she said, When the invitation arrived, I was busy. I never, never bothered to RSVP. Besides, I was a singer. Surely I could go to the reception without returning the RSVP. The Bible, in speaking of heaven, says nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Revelation 21. God has extended to each of you an invitation to the wedding feast of the Lamb. Think of it. We're invited to the wedding feast of the Lamb. What a celebration that's going to be. A place of joy and happiness. An outrageous blessing. Outrageous blessing. Have you responded yet? And if you're going, who will you invite to be your guest? Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we hear your call. Forgive us, Lord, when, Lord, we forget how horrible hell really is. Because, Lord, when we remember that, it reminds us just how wonderful and amazing your salvation is. The gift of salvation that you've given to each of us that we could never earn, we could never repay you for. Father, we just pray that as we prepare, Lord, for your return, we pray that we might be ready. Father, may we be faithful. May we be like those righteous fishermen, Lord, who are casting out their nets and gathering in the lost. Use us, Lord. Use your church to that end. And so, Lord, put it upon each of our hearts. Lord, to reach out to those that you've placed in our lives. May we love them enough, Lord, to speak up. To care about where they're going to spend their eternity. And Lord, for those who are lost in the darkness of sin, we just pray that you might work in their hearts, work in their lives, and call them to yourself. We just pray, Lord, that you might use us toward that end. Again, Lord, thank you that... The results, that's all up to you, but Lord, may we be faithful in casting those nets out for you. Fill us with your Holy Spirit, Lord. The task you've given us is not an easy one. Enable us to do what we couldn't on our own. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.